Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Keeler. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm usually downstairs in the kids ministry overseeing our Calvary Kids team. And uh, they let me uh, grow up today and be up here with you guys a little bit. So um, I love what I get to do. Love being down there with your kiddos and uh, thankful though to be able to share God's word today. Pastor Nate, he's teaching at a church down in Southern California. So keep him in your prayers. He'll be back next week in the pulpit Uh, So, but for our time this morning, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 16. So if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to Psalm 16. What I'd love to do is read that and then uh, pray and dive in and see what the Lord has to say to us today. The Psalm is titled a miktam of David, and we don't really know what that word means. It could have just been a title that David used. It's associated with some of his Psalms. But he starts in verse one and says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this psalm, this song that David penned many years ago. But we recognize today, Lord, it's truth that speaks to us in our situations. It speaks to us, Lord, in the face of the circumstances that are before us. So Lord, as you only can do, would you speak directly to our hearts, Lord. Would you reveal more of who you are and the great plans that you have for our lives? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I was a part of a youth group that had a performing arts team. We called it 100th Psalm. And the purpose of this team was to go around to other churches and even in our own church and perform these skits that had a spiritual truth or a spiritual principle that we wanted to share. One of the most powerful skits was called The Chair. And it started with a chair in in the, the middle of the stage. That was the only prop, really. And then four characters that came through. Uh, the, the skit. And uh, if I was Pastor Manny, I'd act it all out for you with some costume changes, but I'm not. So um, you'll have to settle for me just telling you what happened. So 
with each person that would come in, they would want to sit in the chair, but they all had reservations. There was always an excuse or some reason they didn't want to sit in the chair. And so there was the self-absorbed person who came up and, and, and bumped into the chair and recognized it, looked at it, but then after kind of thinking it over, thought, you know what, I don't think this chair is going to be good for my image. It's kind of bulky, it's kind of clunky, and, and will probably get in the way of my life. So that person went on and did not sit in the chair. Then there's the intellectual who came in and liked the chair from the outset, but, but started measuring it and started kind of thinking through it and plugging it into his calculator and, and came to determine it, he, he wasn't quite sure it was going to be able to hold him. He had doubts and he wasn't ready to sit in the chair, so he passed by. There's the self-righteous person who said, oh, I don't really need a chair. As nice as it would be, I, I'm good on my own. And, you know, I think weak people need chairs. And so he passed by. Then the last one was a, a person who was carrying a lot of heavy weights, baggage, these things. At first, the person was so relieved to see the chair, but then became hesitant when they went to sit in the chair because they weren't quite sure that the chair would hold them and their things. But after thinking it over and talking to themselves, they finally got up the, the gusto to sit in the chair. My favorite part of the skit is when they actually sat in the chair, all of the things fell off to the side and they got to experience rest. And I think it's a great illustration of the invitation that is before us to trust in the Lord. You know, when we trust in the Lord, it's not a static thing in that we made that decision 20 years ago and we don't really need to trust in the Lord in our daily lives because circumstances, situations change. We're faced with opportunities all the time to freshly put our trust in the Lord. And there may be things that we question or doubt. Maybe, maybe there are areas of our life that we're finding it hard to trust in the Lord. And I think the invitation for us today is to remember who he is, to remember what he's done and to know that he is trustworthy. You see, trust is a command in the Bible all throughout the Old and New Testament. Even the idea of trusting in the Lord is mentioned dozens of times. The word trust can be thought of as a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. You see, belief and trust are closely connected. Trust requires belief, but it's more than that. I may believe you when you tell me you won't tell anyone my secret, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust you with my secret. Because trust, in the biblical sense, also carries the idea of dependency and vulnerability. To depend on someone means that you are opening up part of your life to them that you wouldn't open up to others. And that requires a, a level of vulnerability, a bearing of your heart and your soul in a way that can be scary because the question resounds in our heads, is this person gonna let me down? And I know at, at some point, all of us have been let down by someone or a group of people. Maybe even for you, you're, you're new to the church and your history has been one where even the community of believers has let you down. So this idea of trusting the Lord and giving him control, sitting in the chair, for some of you, it brings up a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings. We haven't even talked about the trials and circumstances that happen that test our trust in the Lord. But I ask you this morning, where in your life are you finding it difficult to trust the Lord? Is it the area of finances? The difficulty of making ends meet? Maybe it's relationships the desire for that certain relationship. Maybe it's in your parenting. 
trusting your kids to the Lord, their future. Maybe it's health, a recent diagnosis, an impending surgery. Maybe it's a career or maybe your retirement. Our trust in the Lord is something that we have to remember to freshly bring before him. Otherwise, we lean on our own understanding. As Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, one of the first passages of scripture that I memorized, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So what I want us to see this morning, I believe in this psalm, is an invitation to trust the Lord. And what we have is someone who sat in the chair. They found God dependable. They found him faithful. And what David does is he writes a song. He writes an anthem, if you will, of what a life looks like that trusts in the Lord. What are the benefits? What are the blessings associated with someone who trusts the Lord? So we're going to look at five things that mark the life that trusts in the Lord. First thing, verses one through three, I want to read those again. The person that trusts in the Lord is safe. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David opens his psalm with these words, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. There, there is a settledness to David in this opening line. He has a confidence that God will keep him safe, that God will protect him because he recognizes the Lord is his refuge. David's confidence is no doubt a result of his experience with the Lord time and time again. If you've read David's life, which encompasses the largest portion of scripture dedicated to one person, you have moment and time after time where David is experiencing things with the Lord and, and God is coming through on his behalf. When David was facing serious trials and hardship and suffering, God was there for him. So when David cries out with preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, he's not just saying empty words. He believes that God is his refuge. David's plea in the opening line is simply for God to continue to do what he's done so many times already. In the Kaler household, we uh, made the decision to get a puppy. It was a big decision for us. We talked a lot about it. Charts and graphs were used, um, not literally, but almost. And I'm not sure what caused us to make the final decision, but it, it, uh, I think the technical term is temporary insanity. And so that's what we're pleading. Um, but it's been a great experience for the most part. Um, we love the dog. He loves us. And one of the things I was reminded of, because I've had dogs all growing up, is just how trusting these creatures are. How easily the dog just started to trust us as its owner. And I'm reminded of this every morning when I, when I get up and I'm the first one up and I let him out of his crate after a good night's sleep and he immediately will turn over on his back and he'll just want me to rub his tummy. That's the first thing he wants to do. And it helps that he's stinking cute. So I actually indulge and I, I rub his tummy. Um, but personally for me, a tummy rub in the morning is not the first thing that I... I look forward to. It's maybe second or third, you know, after I have my coffee. But, but you know, I look at him and there he is. He's in this vulnerable position. He's on his back. There he is, trusting me completely. And, and he feels a sense of safety, doesn't he? And I think it's a great picture of, of really how, what David is describing in, in terms of the trust and the safety that he feels in the Lord. 
that we can open up our hearts and our lives with the most vulnerable things, the most close, you know, precious things in our lives, and we can entrust those to God. Have you experienced the Lord's goodness in your life? Can you trust him with what you're facing now, knowing that he has been faithful? I like how someone says it. In him, our fears, insecurities, and anxieties get swallowed up by the safety of his loving refuge. We don't have to fear. We can be safe because he's our refuge. He goes on in verse two and says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David's saying my well-being is not beyond you. It does not live outside of you. You are the good I need. Lord, all the good things in my life are a result of you. Man, isn't there such a peace and safety that comes when we recognize that the good things in our lives are not a result of us, but a result of him? You know, if, I, if I view the good things in my life as a result of me, uh, I will tend towards stinginess and pride and self-righteousness. But when we recognize, as James says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Man, we get released from the grip of holding onto our stuff with closed fists because those things are a gift from God and a result of his love and grace. He is the source of the good things in our lives. David recognized that. And then he says this line, which I love, as for the saints in verse three, in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are my heroes, so to speak, in whom is all my delight. David found true delight in the people of God, even with all their failures. It reminds me of Jesus's words in John 13, 35, your love for one another, he's speaking to his disciples and thus us, will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Church, we are at our best when we extend love to each other in spite of our differences and failings. And this is one of my favorite parts of being a pastor and being in, in ministry and serving in a church like this is being able to watch the church really be the church. Because when the church is the church, man, there's nothing like it. Such a beautiful thing. To see this counter-cultural counter community of people that are connected, not because of their same understanding on, on all of the tertiary or secondary issues, but because of their love for Christ and the fact that he has won them and bought them with a the price. Like, it is such a beautiful thing. And I, I am so blessed at the many ways you care for one another, Calvary Monterey, to see and observe you be the church. So many of you are on the front lines of ministry. As a pastor, you, you kind of, you kind of put me out of a job in some ways <laughs> because you guys are there. It's one of the, the biggest blessings to hear, you know, from life group leaders and people, you know, sharing with us testimonies of what's going on in their life groups and, 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 and reporting to us, hey, the, here's the things that are happening and here's how we're reaching out. Here's how we're ministering. That's amazing. The church being the church, loving, supporting, caring, coming alongside each other. Me and my wife experienced this multiple times in, in our life group and, and in other areas of our church. And, and I think in our fragmented, highly individualistic culture, the communal aspect of our Christian faith will only become more attractive to a world that's longing for intimacy and connection. So what we don't always realize is when we are the church, when we are operating in our best, there's a watching world that... that that is waiting for us to disappoint them. 
Now that doesn't mean we're perfect. We're the bride of Christ and he knows who we are and he's accepted us and he's washed us in his blood. But man, what an example we can be to people that are searching for that intimacy and that connection. When we look around at the big C church, we don't always see shining examples of love and unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. But for our part, as much as depends on us at 3001 Salinas Highway, Monterey, California, 93940, (laughs) let's continue to delight in the church with all her issues. Let's move from a critical spirit to a spirit of charity for the body that we belong to, not just for our own health, but for those who are watching. James Montgomery Boyce, a Bible commentator says, those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. That's what unites us, our love for the Lord. Let it be so, let it be so. So the life that trusts in the Lord is a life that is safe because we are safe in him. Like David, we can find refuge in God. Now, David again started that this, this three-verse um, section by saying, preserve me, O God. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were that David was going through. Often in David's Psalms, he will describe, you know, I'm, my enemies surround me. They, they, they want to put an end to my life. In this Psalm, it, it doesn't seem to carry that same tone. In fact, it doesn't seem that David has a tone of worry or fear or anxiety. It's almost that David is, is just pointing out, Lord, you have... You have taken care of me so well, I know you're gonna take care of me again. It's Bible commentator David Guzek who says, David doesn't mention specifics of what he's facing, but there are three common enemies that for David were true, and for those of us who are believers today, we are battling as well. You know that our three biggest enemies in the world are one, the world, (laughs) number two, the flesh, and the devil. Have you heard of those three? They're big ones, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We think, well, no, it's gotta be this. It's gotta be these people, this group. That's the true fight. No, the spiritual battle that we are waged in is one against the world. This means the system that would corrupt and pollute our witness and affections. The protection we need from the world is from allowing the ideas and ideals of the world to compromise our commitment to Christ. The devil, the deceiver of the brethren, the liar, his favorite tool to use towards us is deception and lies. We need wisdom and discernment to fight off the lies of the enemy and our flesh. This is the fallen sinful part of us that still rears its ugly head and wants to lead and control our lives. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer describes so succinctly the spiritual war that we're waged in against the devil, our flesh, and the world. He argues that these adversaries work together to launch an assault on us in the form of deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized by the fallen world around us. I think that's so well put. What is the war that we're faced with? Deceptive ideas, ideas about who we are, what we need. And these lies play to our disordered desires, our flesh, that are normalized by the fallen world around us, the world. And it's in God that we take refuge. This is what it looks like to trust him, to know that in the spiritual battle, the closer we stay to the Lord, the more that we run to him, we will find safety we will find security. Communion with God and his word is one of the most powerful ways that we can fight in this spiritual battle. The word of God is the offensive weapon. Well, offensive, yes, it is. No no Freudian slip there. But it's also the offensive weapon that Paul calls the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6. Let's use the sword of the spirit to wage war in this spiritual battle. Okay, that's the first one. 
The heart that trusts is a heart, is a life that is saved. Number two, a life that trusts in the Lord is a life that's surrendered. Look at verses four through six with me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David now turns his attention to those who are pursuing other things, other gods, running after lesser things. He refers to their rituals and their practices and things that he would have no part in. His praise was reserved for God alone because he had surrendered his life to God. That's important to note, I think, for us that David looked objectively at the gods of his age and made a decision to not give his allegiance to those idols. With profound insight, he aptly describes where these pursuits lead to much sorrow. The sorrows multiply for those that follow after other things. Friends, we need to be willing to look to the gods of our age and discern the things that they are seeking to draw out in our allegiance. The subtle part of this is that many idols can start off as a good thing. An idol, by definition, is anything that we place above God in our lives. It could be things, it could be relationships, it could be ambitions, it could be hobbies. I think one of the best examples of how a good thing can become the ultimate thing and thus a dominating thing is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You've got the ring that is at the heart of the story. And this ring, it starts to control whoever has it. It starts to corrupt whoever has it. Even those that get the ring and use it with good intentions end up being, being controlled by the dark power of the ring and they find themselves willing to do whatever to whomever in order to accomplish their goals. The wearer of the ring ends up becoming enslaved and addicted to it. So many of our idols start out the same way. It may be a good thing that turns into an ultimate thing, thus resulting in a destructive thing. We end up believing and living as though this is the thing that I need. I can't live without it. Whatever it may be, I won't be happy unless I have it. But the problem with idols is they can't sustain or support the weight of our soul's longings. Each and every idol will ultimately fail, leading only to sorrow. D.A. Carson, Bible commentator, says, the sorrows of those who rely on anything but the Lord increase because every other basis of hope is certain to disappoint. Only the Lord is eternal, a sure anchor for our souls. David looked at the idols around and made a decision to surrender himself to the one who was worthy of his worship. And with worshipful praise, he says in verse five, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Isn't this beautiful? (laughs) Lord, you are what I need. You are all that I need. I remember that um, great piece of cinematic um, film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Remember watching that as a nine-year-old and there's that last kind of scene where they're there in the room with all of the potential holy grails, right? And there's the bad guys and there's Indiana. And the bad guys get the opportunity to go first. And the knight there that's watching over it, you know, he says, hey, but you must be careful because although the true grail brings life, the false grail brings death. And so the bad guys pick one chalice, one cup that's just beautiful. It's got jewels and it's gold and it's shining. And of course, this must be the one. So you remember 
maybe the scene because I cannot, for my nine-year-old memory, wipe it out of my mind because <laughs> why my parents let me watch, I don't know. I'm still bitter and a um, little resentful. It's going to be a hard Thanksgiving, but we'll get through it. Um, so, you know, he, he takes the drink and then all of a sudden, you know, he, he ages and it's just, you know, it, he ends up, um, you remember it. I don't need to describe it. Go home and, you know, pray about it if you haven't seen it yet, maybe. But So then... Then there's Indiana. So that was obviously, as the knight said, he chose poorly, which I love. And then Indiana finds a cup that looks just kind of really plain, right? There's no jewels or, you know, no, it's not gold. It's just kind of this, this cup. And he says, surely this must be the cup of a carpenter. And he takes a drink and yes, that's the one. Saves his dad and has to give it up. But, um, but still a great, I mean, great film. I have the best out of, I think they're making another one. You know, just let it, let it rest, guys. But anyway, what I love about that is just this idea and how much of the time are we like that where we see with our eyes and this thing, this has to be it. This has to be the thing that's gonna bring me satisfaction, that, that's gonna fill my cup, you know, that's gonna, uh, that's gonna be the thing that, that satisfies. And then we find out, just like David says here, no, sorrow. Yeah, there may be a temporary um, benefit, pleasure, reward, whatever it may be. But David pushes in and, and, and he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance because David's thinking not just temporal, he's thinking eternal. David knew enough to know, hey, what God offers me here today is not just here and, and now, it, it's future. My inheritance is greater and broader than anything this world can give me. And we need to remember that, friends. Maybe for you, you're at a place where the idols of this age have failed you and you've found them to be sorrowful, whether pursuits of money or power or pleasure. There's a way forward out of despair, out of sorrow. It's running to the one that offers you living water, water that you can drink from and never thirst again. I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book on this topic of idols, which I commend to you, counterfeit gods. He says, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. See, our idols can't do that. There may be some fulfillment that we find, but man, when we fail them, not if, and when they fail us, they can't offer the redemption that Christ can So a life that trusts is a life that is surrendered to the one true God. Number three, a life that trusts in the Lord is a life that is steadfast. Look at verse seven and eight. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The word steadfast means firm in purpose, resolute. David is not double-minded here. He, He has resolved to follow the Lord to receive his counsel, to always set the Lord before him. He says that the Lord is close to him so much that he won't be shaken. It reminds me of Jesus' command in Matthew 6, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. To set the Lord before us, to be seeking first the Lord David's showing us that a life that trusts finds unwavering devotion to the one whose words are more precious than gold and whose love is better than life. David says that even in the night, my heart instructs me 
Why in the night? Well, often in the night when we're laying awake before we drift off into sleep, we're thinking through our life. We're, we're, we're measuring our life. What, what have I become? What am I doing? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you guys are just thinking, of, well, that was a pretty good Netflix show or something. I don't know. But there's something that happens as we drift off into sleep. We're assessing our lives. And what David says here, I think, is really key. He says, my heart instructs me in the night. And I believe it's because as David would say later in Psalm 119, that I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So when his heart is instructing him, I, I believe we can see that David is saying, Lord, you are instructing me, your counsel, your truth, your guidance. And I'm not saying that that's just always this, you know, okay, positive, encouraging, because there are times where God's counsels are corrective, we're lying awake at night and we're thinking through our day and the Lord, he's able to correct us, instruct us in a way that leads us out of a path of destruction into the path of life. He brings the needed reminder that in earthly pursuits, I won't find lasting joy because they eventually run out. Uh, the other day, uh, me and uh, my four-year-old son, Crew, we were hanging out and Crew um, asked to have some of his Halloween candy you know, uh, my boys just made a killing. We had like three different kind of fall parties they were a part of. And so just a huge bag of candy that uh, me and my wife have enjoyed. I mean, they've enjoyed, um, but we're terrible parents. We let them have one piece a day. Um, so he, he was at the point where he could choose from, you know, what piece he wanted. He chose uh, Sour Patch Kids, which I mean, is there a better choice? Honestly, come on. Great, great candy. So there was a little package and it was like eight, you know, Sour Patch Kids in, in the thing. And so give it to him and uh, he's a happy camper. And then about 10 minutes later, he comes to me and he goes, um, dad, I don't want this. And, you know, Cruz done that before. He's four. So he hasn't experienced all of the candy that's out there. And so when he tries something new, sometimes he's like, I don't like it. I don't want to waste the calories. Um, just kidding. He's, he doesn't say that. He's not thinking about that. He's just like, this isn't as good as the other thing I want to try. So it, it, there has been a precedent for that in our house. But um, so I asked him, well, well where's, where's the candy? And he shows me his little wrapper. And I mean, there's not a lot in there. So Crew ended up eating all of the Sour Patch Kids, except for the last one. I think what he did is he chewed it up. He got the taste. He, 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 he explored that, that color, whatever it was. And then he just spit out a little bit of it and just kind of rubbed it on the inside package so that he could say, I didn't eat them all, dad. I didn't, I don't like these. I want something else. It was such a cute moment. And uh, I had to break his heart and just be like, buddy, that's not the way it works. I'm sorry. I wish I know, I know, but uh, we're gonna have to wait till tomorrow. And so, but I think, you know, often I see myself like crew when, when there's something there's something that my heart goes to, whatever it may be. Maybe you, you know the things that, that our heart gets drawn towards. And we, we experience that thing. We, we take hold of that thing. And, and, and we realize towards the end, man, I, this isn't what I want. <laughs> I, I don't want this. Lord, can, you, can, you, can, I, have, can I have another chance? Can I have another, another opportunity? And, and the good news with the Lord is, Man, he forgives us. He gives us his grace. Even when we try to justify and say, well, I didn't quite, you know, and if, if it was this, you know, I'm not as bad as this, you know, whatever it may be. And yet the Lord, I think, says to us, I've got something better for you. 
I've got something that truly will satisfy, that won't leave you going, I want something else. And that's, that's where we have to find that resolve to say, Lord, your way is better. Even when my desires, my mind, my heart, whatever it is, is telling me something else, God, I'm gonna speak truth. I'm gonna speak the gospel to myself and remind myself that, Lord, your way is truly better. I wanna set you always before me because in that I won't be shaken. There's a stability. It's the Psalm 1 that the person that delights in the law of the Lord will, and meditates day and night, they'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. There's a, there's a firmness. There's a, a I won't be shaken kind of aspect to that. So a life that trusts in the Lord is a life that is steadfast, resolved, no matter what comes. And getting towards the end, number four, a life that trusts in the Lord is a life that is secure. Look at nine and 10 with me. Therefore, we, we recognize that word's important because he's speaking Um, in connection to what he just said, that he set the Lord before him always. He's not shaken. Therefore, the result is my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, David's connecting what he just said. Because David made the decision to let the Lord always before him, to remain steadfast and trust and rely on him, this brought him incredible joy. So what happens when we seek first the kingdom? The byproduct is joy, but it's a joy like no other joy. It's not like the joy that we experience or the happiness we experience with circumstances being all good and everything going well. I mean, I'm thankful for those times in my life where you just kind of sit back and say, Lord, thank you. This is a season right now (laughs) that we're in. Things are good. We love each other. And we know that's not always the case because we live in a changing world. I remember a story my uh, friend told me about when he was at Disneyland with his family. He overheard a dad talking to his daughter and the daughter was having a hard time. She was, she was kind of having a, a meltdown a little bit and she, she was probably three Dole Whips in and the sugar just kind of hit her, but there she is. And, and you could tell the dad was trying to reason with her a little bit. And, um, and it got to the point where he just kind of frustrated, you know, here he is, brought his family to Disneyland. I'm sure he's thinking, do you know how much I paid to make this vacation happen? But he just says to her, stop crying. We're at the happiest place on earth. <laughs> to which she did not respond, dad, good point. Thank you for speaking wisdom into my life. <laughs> she continued to cry. That's because happiness is really circumstantial. Hey, as long as I'm, I'm, I'm doing the things I want, as long as things are going well, as long as people like me and man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But joy is something different. Joy really can be there despite circumstances. And even when things are crashing down around us, because our joy isn't connected to the changing seasons of our life but to the unchanging character of Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can bank on him. We can know that our joy is secure in him, that our lives are secure in him. Is following Jesus costly? Yes, it is costly. Jesus said it would be. But what I'm trying to show us is that the benefits are greater than the cost. 
When we put Jesus first and we make him Lord of our life, yes, there is a cost. David knew the cost, but he understood the benefit. And he sang a song about his decision. The benefit, he says in verse nine, is joy is in my heart. My whole being rejoices. That's the joy that comes as a result of seeking first his kingdom. And nothing in this world can take that away from you, Christian. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is a really cool passage. For those of you that we read through this, you already know that that there's an aspect of this that is true of David. But there is a truer aspect to what David has said in verse 10. Yes, David could see, Lord, you are gonna take care of me. There's an eternity and and I know that I'm gonna be with you. But even the Old Testament understanding of eternity or the Old Testament understanding of the afterlife, it was was looking through a glass dimly. It was was cloudy. The New Testament understanding and and what Jesus and the the New Testament writers brought is a, a greater picture, a fuller picture of what we have to look forward to. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1, 10, um, speaking to the fact that Jesus brought this understanding to us. It says, and has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what David could, could somewhat grasp being at the time and place that he was, we now get to look and see the fulfillment And we get to long for that day where God will make all things new, where we will rule and reign with him into eternity. So in one aspect, David is saying, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But in a truer sense, Jesus fulfilled this promise in his death and in his resurrection. In fact, it was Peter in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost that he's preaching his sermon that he references this exact passage in in Acts chapter six and applies it to the person of Jesus. It was Jesus who was crying out to the father that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. Jesus being the true holy one. This is a phrase that refers to the Messiah. And it speaks to the fact that Jesus's death, burial and resurrection was foretold and what that accomplished is the perfect righteousness that we needed on our account. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, even when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus remained God's holy one, taking your shame, my shame, our guilt on himself and yet remaining holy. This is what makes the resurrection so powerful. It proves the perfection of Jesus's work on the cross. The only one, who could do what he did. Jesus's death was complete. As someone has said, Christ spoiled death from the inside so that death would not be the end for us. I love that. I remember hearing a story of the pioneers who were traveling west, hundreds and thousands of people in their covered wagons and their families who set out to embark on a better future, to perhaps get a plot of land and establish their future together. And there's a story about the pioneers as they were heading, they, they saw a, 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 in front of them a fire that was blazing and that was quickly approaching them. And those on the front determined that there was no way that they were gonna be able to retreat and turn back because the fire was going to be too strong and too fast to get everyone to turn around. They were, they were going to die. 
but someone had the idea. What we need to do is we need to start a fire, a line that would burn away the fuel and, and all the grass that was in front of us so that, that when the fire comes, it will come and not penetrate through. It won't hop over that line, but it will go around us and we'll be protected. And so that's exactly what they did. They had a controlled fire that, that burned the area in front of them that, that, that wrapped far enough around to when, when the fire came, it went just on the side of them because what they knew is that the fire can't go where the fire's already been. The fire can't go where the fire's already been. And friends, Jesus experienced the fire of judgment for us so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus took that upon himself. The fire can't go where the fire's already been. So friend, understand that you are secure in him because he took that upon himself. Rest in your salvation, won for you by Christ. We don't need to earn the Father's love and approval. Receive it because you and I have been redeemed by his grace. Finally, the life that trusts is a life that is satisfied. David closes his song. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David closes with a reminder that only true lasting joy can be found in the presence of the Lord. He's our ultimate treasure. He's our supreme good where joy and meaning are found. He's our supreme treasure because there's no one that can love us like him. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 3, he says to us, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was his hope. Paul wanted us to be filled, to be satisfied, not with stuff or things. I mean, Paul knew better than anyone that those things aren't going to last, that he, he learned whatever state I'm in to be content. But he also saw that to be filled with the fullness of God's love, man, that is where satisfaction is found. When we're tempted to run from his presence and pursue something else for our joy, we're reminded that in his presence, his fullness of joy, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Maybe your pursuit has led you out of his presence. He wants to welcome you back. He's waiting with open arms. Remember a story I heard of a family who had a teenage son. The teenage son fell in with the wrong crowd and ended up coming to his parents one day who loved him deeply. And, and he said, mom and dad, I'm moving out. I don't like your rules. I wanna live on my own. I wanna do my own thing. So as heartbroken as his parents were, they, they, let, him, they let him leave and, and he, he moved away. It was a couple of years later that he realized that was not a good decision. <laughs> he decided to come home. So he called the house, that same number. He got the answering machine. He left a message, mom, dad, I'm coming home. And so he gets dropped off, goes to the front door. He sees a note on the front door with his name on it. He opens it up. He says, son, 
We're so glad you're home. Your favorite food's in the fridge, snacks are in the cupboard. Your room is the same, we left it. It's all ready for you, come in son, welcome home. So the shame and the guilt that he was feeling just started to dissipate as he walked into his home and realized his parents' love and forgiveness. That's not the end of the story. He hears his parents' car pull into the driveway and then quickly the door slams shut and they run to the front door, tears in their eyes, shocked, looking at their son. And the son says, mom, dad, I'm I'm home. They said, when did you get here? He said, well, I just got here five, 10 minutes ago. I thought you knew. I left a message on the answering machine. They said, we've been out all day. We didn't get your message. He said, you didn't get my message, but you had a note on the door. You, you had uh, the, the fridge stocked. You, you were waiting for me. They said, son, we left that note the day you left. We've been waiting for you this whole time. Welcome home. And that's the heart of our father. No matter how often we trail off and we try to pursue joy in other things, in lesser things. He holds himself out. The chair is there. The invitation is there to sit down, to trust him. He invites each of us to do that. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.